College presidents can decrease commercialization by working together through conferences. They can limit the times and days when basketball games are played, limit the number of breaks for commercials. They do not have to follow the professional model. They can limit, not eliminate, but limit advertising and stadiums, logos worn by players and coaches. What's the consequences of bringing order to the system? It's a reduced revenue stream. Is that good? Yes, it will create needs for cost containment and will bring under control the arms race. Provided, of course, that university presidents and university administrators don't succumb to the pressure to reallocate academically-based money for athletics at that point. Understand this. The issue is not the amount of revenue that comes in. We should do everything we can within the values and mission of higher education to maximize revenues to these programs. That is what the rest of the campus is doing in their areas, and athletics must do the same. But there appears to be confusion about this point in some quarters. In two weeks, we will respond to a letter from the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee about the tax-exempt status of intercollegiate athletics. Should college athletes receive stipends? No. What, why, why not? <laughs> if by stipends you mean pay for play, absolutely not. If you enjoy professional sports, um, go watch the Redskins or the Indianapolis Colts. Um, you've got to remember the difference between professional sports and college sports. Here's the difference. It's very simple. Those who engage in intercollegiate athletics are students. We don't pay English majors. We don't pay those who participate in theater, and we don't pay student athletes. You talked about the uh, request from the House Ways and Means Committee for information. How concerned are you about the inquiry into the tax-exempt status of college sports? And this question wants to know other aspects of it that are hard to defend. We're absolutely certain that we're in full compliance with IRS standards, and uh, we've been uh, ably advised by outside counsel along those lines. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I am your host. All of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com, where I've got all of my episodes. I've got some descriptions, show notes, and some additional resources you can look at if you'd like to. Then I also have been writing in a blog for about two years now, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X, Com. And I occasionally will link to the blog in the podcast show notes and description. And I think I'm going to do that in this episode as well. Because what we're going to talk about today is going to take us really right into the perfect storm that I started with when I in my very first episode. And that is this time frame of 2006 to the present where the NCAA and the Power Five, as the Power Five is aggregating its power and taking over control of the NCAA and the entire college sports market. Marketplace, the strategy shifts from trying to cooperate with external regulators to outright defying them and then finding a way, a broad-based tactic, to eliminate them. And that's what's happening right now in real time. So as we're heading into this second discussion on the collegiate model, I want you to keep in mind as we're going through some of the pushback from Congress, 
what the relationship is between the NCAA and the big-time football interests on the one hand and these external regulators, namely Congress, but we're going to also bridge over into the antitrust litigation external threat. But think about how the NCAA looks at its relationship to Congress, how Congress has looked at its relationship to the NCAA and big-time football interests. Then it was all about the BCS. The BCS is essentially now what the CFP is from a financial standpoint, from a market structure standpoint. And all those schools, the Power Five, what are now the Power Five schools, keep all that money. And that's what this whole thing has been about. That's what the initial hearings were about in 1997. That's what the hearings were about in 2003. That's what uh, some exchanges were about in 2006. And all of it relates back to protecting this massive pile of cash that football has exclusive access to because of this Board of Regents decision, which granted the big-time college football schools financial independence from the NCAA. And and looking at the historical relationship between the big-time football interests and the NCAA and then Congress, you see some patterns develop. And I'm going to get into those once we walk through the, the events up through 2006. And on the back side of that, you've got some really important themes that have developed that have carried forward into how the NCAA and Power Five have managed the perfect storm from 2006 to the present. And in my very first episode, I said, look, you need to look at how the tactics changed in 2006 with the filing of this white suit and the beginning of the antitrust litigation wave in California. And that was White, O'Bannon, and Austin. And the NCAA went from really just telling Congress what they wanted to hear, and then saying, trust us, trust us. That changed when you started to fold in the federal courts as external regulators, and the NCAA went into its big tobacco imitation. And it started to lay the foundation for what became an offensive initiative in 2019. And they saw the opportunity with this name, image, and likeness issue to get in front of Congress to ask for all of the things they needed to eliminate the athletes rights movement. And the NCAA has been very calculated about that. And in this early 2000s period, as Brand is transitioning into being the NCAA president, the NCAA opens a government relations office in Washington, D.C. And then as the external threats continue with these antitrust suits, you started to see this kind of slow rolling strategy form driven in large part by the NCAA's lawyers and lobbyists. And then in connection with some of these important events that happened in 2014 with the NCAA being hauled before Congress, with the O'Bannon suit coming close to a resolution and the word on the street was it wasn't going to be good for the NCAA and the Power Five. And then you also had the Northwestern case that was decided in 2014. All these things coming together. The NCAA then hired Brownstein Hyatt as this high-powered DC lobbying firm and has been working towards a goal where they could have an opportunity to go on offense to impose their will through the United States Senate. And that's exactly what happened in the perfect storm beginning in May of 2019. And then the NCAA and Power Five lost their advantage in January in the Senate when the Georgia special elections flipped the Senate from Republican to Democrat. So now let's go to where we left off with the collegiate model. And we have, as I noted earlier, we've had these hearings in the House and the Senate, both in the the judiciary committees. Again, they have 
authority over antitrust issues. And this was a battle between the haves and the have-nots and the smaller football schools, what are now the group of five, and they are nipping at the heels of the power five, but not that effectively, and I think they're losing ground, quite frankly. But you had this external threat that I think really had Miles Brand and his people at the NCAA thinking about how they were going to formulate a response at the organizational level to this threat. And so then let's look at what happens in 2004. And as South Hall and Starowski point out in their 2013 article, Cheering on the Collegiate Model, Miles Brand first uses the phrase, the collegiate model, in his 2004 State of the Association speech. So at the annual convention every year in January, the NCAA president delivers a State of the Association speech. In 2004, the NCAA was also in the midst of a strategic planning initiative. And as part of that, Brand folded the collegiate model into the big picture thinking that the NCAA was doing. And he defined it that part of the strategic planning process would be a recommitment to the collegiate model of athletics, a values-based template for intercollegiate athletics, which is an interesting way of putting it because uh, I don't know if that's really a recommitment because the quote-unquote collegiate model had never really been a part of formal NCAA policy. But he doesn't really articulate this precise boundaries of the collegiate model. And he speaks in very broad brushes and he lays out a definition of the NCAA, which you heard in some of the clips I played from this 2003 testimony where Brand wants to make very clear that the NCAA national office is just doing the will of the people and just responsive to the membership and all of this stuff, which is really a responsibility deflection tactic. But he lays out a definition of the NCAA and he puts it into three parts. He defines, he says there's the association, there's the membership, and then there's the national office. And he defines the association as the corporate entity comprising member institutions, conferences, the governance structure, boards and all that, affiliated entities uh, outside like coaches associations, referees associations, as well as student athletes, coaches, and athletics administrators. Second is the membership. The membership of the association is primarily the colleges and universities. It is campus-based. And then third, he goes to the national office, which in his judgment represented the employees in the Indianapolis office who make up the infrastructure of the association. Notably, in the definition of membership, he does not include student athletes because student athletes are not members of the NCAA. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand. And I talked about this in some prior episodes and how the NCAA has responded to athlete lawsuits against the NCAA that make claims for breach of fiduciary duty. And the NCAA says, we have no duty to you whatsoever, no contractual duty, no equitable duty, no legal duty. And that flows in part from the fact that the athletes really aren't members of the NCAA. So you have this framing of what the NCAA is, and that's been a big talk point for brand, but nobody really understands what this is all about. Let me explain it to you. But then he incorporates this collegiate model, and I'm going to refer to the structure of that discussion to the South Hall and Starowski article. So brand is trying to talk about this drift towards the professional model as a looming disaster. And he says, the threat is real and the consequences devastating. I want to go on record in calling attention to this potential disaster. And then South Hall and Starowski say, to avert this catastrophe, Brand charted three objectives that must be met to reaffirm the, quote, 
collegiate model and sustain its future within higher education in ways that are valuable to universities, end quote. And those three things are first, the recommitment to academic success as a primary goal of intercollegiate athletics. Second, the concept of the student-athlete is central to the enterprise. And third, the the NCAA has to reconnect athletics programmatically and financially with the rest of the university. And that last one's really important. And when we get to his 2006 State of the Association speech, you can see the extent to which he really focuses on that in defining the business model of big-time college sports. And he says that the the role of the association, and that is the overall, this big, big umbrella of the NCAA, is to be the central point of contact in sustaining the collegiate model. And then the 2004 speech is just a bunch of really incomprehensible academic doublespeak. And he talks about partnerships and stakeholders and cooperative action and all these neutral objective instruments for cooperative action that all directed to supporting the collegiate model. But he made very clear that he would defend the collegiate model against those who would turn intercollegiate athletics into professional sports. So what you really have here in 2004 is Miles Brand kind of setting the broad contours of the collegiate model, sticking the collegiate model's toe in the water to see how it's going to be received and how it can be refined to serve the association's objectives and really the big-time powerful football interest objectives. And then we go on into 2004, and then another interesting thing happens, and that was in September of 2004. The House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution held hearings on the lack of due process in NCAA infractions and enforcement actions. And that was a theme that goes back decades. And since the NCAA kind of aggregated its power, became a a legitimate enforcement organization, and that started in the 1950s, as we've already talked about. But as the market is evolving and television is ubiquitous in college sports and the money's going up and up and up, the NCAA developed this reputation as a brutal enforcer of its compensation limits and its recruiting rules. And remember, almost all of the Division I manual is devoted to to two things. One, enforcing the overarching compensation limit, which is set at the value of an athletic scholarship. And two, regulating competitive advantage, disadvantage in the talent acquisition market. And the NCAA forced compliance with those two fundamental components of its business model through its infractions process. And I talked about how Walter Byers was so proud of that very first infractions case he opened against the University of Kentucky in the early 50s in connection with that point shaving scandal. And because of this 1988 case, the Tarkanian case, which held that the NCAA was not a state actor and didn't have to provide federal due process rights or any other protections under federal law, the NCAA evolved into this rogue administrative state that just ran roughshod over the due process rights of people who were subject to its jurisdiction. And there had been concerns about that raised for decades. And the NCAA just basically gave those critics the double-barreled up yours and continued with its brutal enforcement of these uh, compensation limits and recruiting rules. So there was something going on in Alabama, and a couple of Alabama assistant coaches were suing the NCAA because of some improper enforcement action that the NCAA taken. And Alabama Republican Spencer 
Bacchus, he requested the hearings. And the committee chair was Steve Shabbat from Ohio, a Republican. So the Republicans controlled the House at that time. But this was something that uh, I think was a universal concern because the NCAA just had a horrible reputation in its enforcement and infractions work. And some of the language that's used in, in this hearing is just really powerful. And Bacchus, he invokes the Magna Carta to frame his concerns about the NCAA and the fact that they operate like the East German Stasi, not like a nonprofit education institution and organization. And they have ruined careers and athletes' lives and dreams. And they've done it with impunity. And it's still going on. So that really... I think was another scare that had Brand had to fold into how he was perceiving the threat from external regulators. So you, you have the antitrust issue with the BCS, then you have this infractions and enforcement concern, the due process concerns. And that's an area I think that Congress would have been more likely to get involved in than in regulating the college football market. So that's a, a legitimate threat. And then, and this was an interesting hearing, and, and when I said earlier that I want you to think about these events in the context of the NCAA and Power Five's relationship to Congress. This next event is is what I'm talking about. So in 2005, this is December in 2005. So this is only a month before Miles Brand is going to deliver his 2006 State of the Association speech, which is so important. And so you've had this sequence of hostile hearings in the House and the Senate that are looking to put a lot of pressure on the NCAA. Then you have this hearing in 2005 by the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee. And that's a big committee. The chair is Cliff Stearns, a Republican of Florida. And on its face, the hearing was about competition in college bowl games, the same kind of substance and subject matter as the 2003 hearings in both the House and the Senate. But this time, the tone of the hearing was much, much different. And I think this was a really a buffer to transition into Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech and lay the foundation for the proposition that the NCAA needed to, to take care of these issues and the BCS needed to take care of these issues and that Congress shouldn't be involved and that we trust the NCAA. And so as Stearns was framing the issues, he was very deferential to the NCAA. And the other thing that was interesting about these hearings is that they were very sparsely attended. There were only 10 representatives that actually showed up. And I'm going to talk about where they came from and what their interests were. And then a little bit about the panel that they put together, because the panel was a dog and pony show for the BCS interests and the big time football interests. And what came from that was this narrative that, first of all, what are we doing here? Why are we even talking about this? Because there were a lot of important things going on in 2005 and we're on the backside of Katrina. And that was really a, a huge issue on multiple levels that really hadn't been addressed appropriately at the federal level. And so Congress was getting a lot of heat. The White House was getting a lot of heat. And so some of these representatives in this 2005 hearing are saying, well, they went through the list of all of the things that they 
have been attentive to or should be attentive to. And then they're saying, why in the world are we talking about college football? Yeah, it's nice and it's big and it's part of American culture. But in the Grand Balancing Act, uh, we have much more important issues to address. And that's a very important dynamic that comes out of this particular group because one of them, Marsha Blackburn, who was on that committee and was at that hearing and made those very arguments in 2020 when she is a senator from Tennessee and she sits on the Commerce Committee, she didn't voice any concern about how in the world we could be talking about furthering NCAA interests even under the ostensible guise of name, image, and likeness compensation, when we're dealing with one of the biggest crisis periods in American history, the entire economy shut down, the whole country shut down. And I did a post on this comparing the other hearings that were conducted in the time frame that that the Senate was considering name, image, and likeness compensation, this fraud that the NCAA put out to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And when you look at the significance of the hearings that were held compared to this nil compensation issue, it's embarrassing. It is really embarrassing. One of the things that I wondered throughout this whole legislative campaign post-COVID is why hasn't a United States senator looked Mark Emmert in the eye or any of these Power Five conference commissioners and said, get out of my hearing room. You have no business here. This is a bogus issue. We have more important things to to deal with right now, and you're asking us to stop our business in this profound crisis to grant you unprecedented, historic protections and immunities so that you can preserve your business interests and your multi-million dollar salaries. And this goes to how the NCAA was so effective in launching this offensive campaign in uh, 2019 and 2020 as compared to the defensive position they were in in the hearings back in the the 90s and the early 2000s. But the the clear theme in 2005 was we have no business talking about this. It was kind of like get this issue off our agenda. And then the other thing that came through in a related way in this hearing was that okay, even if we're going to look at this issue, maybe we can talk about it and maybe there's some benefit here because we may inform the debate at some level. But ultimately, the NCAA has to deal with this. The big-time powerful conferences have to deal with this. The BCS executives have to deal with this. And we trust them to do the right thing. That's what came out of that very interesting hearing. But I want to take a look at something because when the NCAA lost its advantage in the Senate with the Georgia special elections, a lot of people were saying, and I guess I was in this camp initially, because the NCAA immediately pulled out of Congress, they stopped their voluntary rulemaking, they completely put the brakes on uh, name, image, and likeness compensation through the legislative process before the voluntary organizational rulemaking process. But the conventional wisdom at that time was that the NCAA really had no chance in the Senate. And I have said, I'd I'd put an asterisk next to my writings and comments about the consequences of the Georgia special election. And that is that even though in the Senate, the name, image, and likeness issue and the athletes' rights issue more generally became a partisan issue. And if you're a Republican, you're for the NCAA, status quo, power five. If you're a Democrat, you're for the athletes. And there was not a lot of middle ground there. But I also talked about the fact 
that the power five dynamic was going to be so important here. And when you look at what this hearing in 2005, and then you project forward to the dynamic that set in in that 2005 hearing into 2021, you may see a much more NCAA Power 5 friendly Senate than a lot of people think. And the reason for that is this aggregation of Power 5 power at the political level. And you've got 34 of the nation's flagship state universities represented in the Power Five. And so when I look at vote counting in the Senate, I'm not really looking at Republican, Democrat, or potential grabs that the NCAA could could get. I'm looking at whether they come from a Power Five state and the strength of the football product in that state. And when you look at it that way, you see some opportunity for the NCAA. And they need a bipartisan appearance, at least. And if they can just get a handful of of Democrats to go on board with some kind of NCAA Power 5 protective legislation. And I think it's going to ultimately be narrowed down to preemption because that's what they really need right now. But I think when you look at some of these Democrat senators that come from Power 5 states, and then with a few of them, some uh, comments that they have made in prior hearings related to college sports, they're not looking at this in terms of Democrat, Republican, or athletes' rights versus NCAA rights. They're looking at how they're going to either retain or potentially lose voters in their state who are driven in many ways by the climate and culture of big-time college sports in their state. And if they go on some kind of uh, campaign that's not going to sit well with the home fan base, then that's a huge political issue for them. And that is a great opportunity for the NCAA. So in this 2005 hearing, you had only 10 representatives. And let's take a look at where they came from. Let's see, Wisconsin, Texas, Tennessee, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, Florida, Nebraska, Michigan, Illinois, and then the outlier is Wyoming. And the representative from Wyoming was the only one who was making any aggressive arguments against the BCS interests or the NCAA interests, but the rest of the representatives were from Power Five states that had huge football programs, and they were openly hostile to any congressional intervention in the BCS bowl structure or any of the antitrust issues that had been identified in, in 2003. This hearing was the beginning, I think, of clear evidence that this discussion can be driven by power five interests, not by party line interest. Because among those 10, maybe there were 11, 10 or 11 representatives, you had both Democrats and Republicans saying the exact same thing. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic. But then, so who was at that hearing? You had five witnesses. You had the commissioner of the Big Ten, You had the chairman of the Rose Bowl uh, game and committee. You had the chairman of the Fiesta Bowl. You had the chairman of the Bowl Championship Series, the BCS. And then you had the president of the Football Bowl Association. You had the Chamber of Commerce for BCS interests and big-time powerful football interests and NCAA interests. And it was just marketing propaganda that was designed, I think, to be a counterweight to some of the criticism that had come out. And again, leading into Miles Brandt's January 7th, 2006 speech, this at least provided some buffer between the Congress and the NCAA. 
And I'll just say this one last thing on this BCS issue. And that is that really the focus of the debate was whether big time college football should go to a playoff system. And all these BCS interests, Miles Brand and Harvey Perlman and conference commissioners at the time were saying, no, 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 this is going to be the end of college sports. And in the opening, uh, montage of quotes at the beginning of this episode. I think it's, it's the last quote from this guy who was with the Football Bowl Association, and he just makes that dramatic statement that if we go to a playoff system, college sports and college football, as we know it, will collapse. It will, you know, now all those people are saying that the college football playoff is the greatest thing that's ever happened to college football. So now we're headed into this really consequential State of the Association speech on on January 7th, 2006. And going into this speech, remember, the NCAA still appears at least to be doing the bidding of the BCS, even though they have really don't have any financial skin in that game, except to the extent that they want to keep the football interest happy by doing their dirty work for them and receiving all the March Madness money and then keeping that in-house in the NCAA and distributing it out after they have taken their huge cut. So you had Brand still on that train. And because of that, he is getting heat. The NCAA is getting heat really for the way that the BCS is operating and big time football is operating. And the primary concerns are that you have serious anti-competitive impacts that raise Antitrust issues, legitimate antitrust issues. You have concerns raised in that regard that big-time football and big-time men's basketball ought to be just chopped off from the NCAA because they're operating as professional sports. And there's no intelligent way to reconcile the business model for those two sports with the rest of the NCAA and all the principles it claims to hold, which then leads to another potential concern, and that is whether the NCAA really is operating as a legitimate nonprofit tax-exempt organization because of the professional purpose and nature of its two most valuable products. And then you add into this from the side, this infractions and enforcement issue, the due process issue, which has always been a vulnerability. And I'm going to talk about that at some point. I'm going to frame it a little bit differently. I have some different thoughts on that. But you have that issue out there. So you have all these things coming together. So brand needs to come up with a theory that addresses All of them. So in this 2006 speech, he uses a framework that's not unlike the 2004 speech. So he identifies basically three principles of the collegiate model of intercollegiate athletics. And then he elaborates on that. And these principles are are interesting. So I'll just go ahead and read them out as Brand frames them and then talk about his explanation. Okay, principle one. Those who participate in intercollegiate athletics are to be students attending a university or college. Principle number two, intercollegiate athletics contests are to be fair, conducted with integrity, and the safety and well-being of those who participate are paramount. Principle number three, intercollegiate athletics is to be wholly embedded in universities and colleges. So Brand just pays lip service to principles one and two, and then he gets into principle number three. And as he is elaborating on these principles, he makes clear that principle number three includes the quote-unquote underlying financial structure of intercollegiate athletics. Brand says there is significant misunderstanding of not only the financial model for athletics, but how it mirrors the approach for the rest of higher education. 
And so the brand then goes into what is, I believe, the most important component of this whole discussion about the collegiate model as it relates to the basic relationship between the revenue-producing athletes, football, men's basketball players, and the universities. So now let's look specifically at how brand frames and then redefines the fundamental business model of big-time college sports. So brand starts with the proposition, and this is a great rhetorical device, that the way that big athletics departments operate in big-time football and men's basketball programs operate within the athletics department and in relation to the broader university is no different than the way that other parts of the university relate to each other. And what he comes out and says is that the revenues that are brought in are not always spent on the people or places that the revenue came from. So Brand says the basic business plan for the university is one of massive redistribution of revenues on the basis of the institution's mission and strategic directions. There is nothing wrong with this financial approach. Indeed, without it, the modern comprehensive university, as we know it, could not exist. I want you to hold on to that phrase, massive redistribution of revenues, because we're going to circle back around to that point as we close this out. And he goes on to say that Revenues from all sources are redistributed to provide participation opportunities in a broader range of sports. So now Brand is not talking about the input side, how the money comes in. He's talking about how it's spent because to reconcile all of the problems between this professional product and the broader university, which is supposedly operating as a legitimate nonprofit, Brand has to justify not only how the money comes in and its theoretical importance in the overall business model, but how it is spent. So he says that in Division I, the revenue sports, most often only football and men's basketball, generate resources that are needed to conduct all the other sports in the program. The goal is to maximize the number of student athletes participating at a competitive level across sports. This is the goal because athletics participation enhances the educational experience of students, and the institution's goal is to try to provide the best educational experience to the greatest number of enrolled students. He then says, this is critical to understanding the relationship of athletics to higher education, and it bears repeating. We want to maximize the number of student athletes competing at a competitive level, and we do this because athletics participation enhances the educational experience, and enhancing the educational experience of students is the goal of higher education. That is the collegiate model. Of athletics. So, Brand has put this broad framework in place where this is just what universities do. They, you know, raise a bunch of money or uh, some department makes a bunch of money, and we take that money and we engage in massive redistributions of wealth in order to support other components of the university uh, product that is consistent with its mission and its goals. So, then <laughs> he says, now he's trying to be a little more specific, and he says, so while intercollegiate athletics is often criticized for looking like professional sports on the input side, generating revenue. It is rarely understood that intercollegiate athletics and higher education behave like classic nonprofits on the output side in the way they redistribute those revenues to support their missions. The business of college sports is not a necessary evil. Rather, it is a proper part of the overall 
enterprise. And he, he said this actually a paragraph before. He says, athletics, like the university as a whole, seeks to maximize revenue. In this respect, it has an obligation to conduct its revenue-producing activities in a productive and sound business-like manner. Anything less would be incompetence at best and malfeasance at worst. So basically, Miles Brand is laying the foundation for the maximum exploitation of the only two products in college sports that make money. That's football and men's basketball. And he's justifying that in this university framework where you just take the money wherever it comes from and you spend it in ways that are consistent with your mission and everything is okay and everybody is happy. He then really drills down on the principle of tying athletics as at the definitional level into the values of the university. And he said, the third principle, this one we're talking about now in the business model context, places a crucial constraint on how an athletics department functions in generating revenues and by being embedded in institutions of higher education, intercollegiate athletics departments inherit their values from the university. And what he's saying there is that athletics and academics and the athletic component of the overall university is inherently educational. So he's simply redefining the relationship between those two components, which uh, according to external observers, most external observers and external regulators are really operating at odds with each other and that you have this highly professionalized football, men's basketball product. So he goes on and now he's trying to uh, continue his rationalization. He says, the NCAA has an obligation derived from its members to maximize the revenue from television contracts and to manage them following the best business practices. And he's referring to the March Madness contract, interestingly. And that's the only contract that makes money for the NCAA. And he talks about that the NCAA negotiates and manages broadcast media contracts for its postseason championships. The only one that's of consequence is the March Madness tournament. And that's what makes all the NCAA executives really well off and rich. So and then he says, and this is really this is really the money quote here or the money passage. He says, in the past and indeed currently, there is some ambivalence about business issues. To some extent, it is felt that it is improper, not quite right, for the NCAA to be engaged in business activity. Amateur sports should be above all that. Athletics departments need the revenue, but working too hard to generate revenue somehow taints the purity of college sports. Nonsense, Brand exclaims with an exclamation point. This type of thinking is both a misinterpretation and a misapplication of amateurism. Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. Let me say that again. Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. That's breathtaking. And for Miles Brand to reconcile these components of the university product, he has to engage in this kind of blatant hypocrisy. Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. So what he's saying here is that basically we can have a truly professional enterprise and we have a duty to maximize revenue 
in that enterprise. And the only way to do that is to make the product even more professional because that's what consumers want and that's what they pay for. Money, 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 money. And you just market the ever-living hell out of those two sports. And that overt professionalization and commercialization of college sports is not only appropriate, it is mandatory. And then we take that money and we spend it on participation opportunities. That's the nonprofit purpose to which this money is being put, which results by brand's own acknowledgement in the massive transfer of wealth from men's football and men's basketball to non-revenue athletes. The overwhelming majority of those beneficiaries are white. So are the administrators. So are the coaches. So are the university people that are straddling those two worlds. And the athletes who are generating that revenue are African-American by and large. How that could not have been on the radar screen when Brand made this speech and he's formulating this model. I, I don't know because in the previous section, just a couple of pages before, he goes on about minority hiring and he says there's an intolerable lack of head coaches, uh, head football coaches who are African American in divisions one, two, and three. And he says, especially in the high profile division one A level, which is now the power five. And then an egregious lack of women and minority athletics directors and conference commissioners and on and on with this diversity and inclusion stuff that the NCAA just tosses around like candy at a Christmas parade. So he's talking about people of color. They need to be put into leadership positions. And he he talks about the importance of civil rights legislation, really Title IX. He actually spends more time talking about Title IX than he does the race issue. But how can you go from that to this definition of your business model that requires the exploitation of black labor? And he does it. I don't think he was thinking about it that way. It's my belief that when Miles Brand was putting this together, he was trying to put together a model that would capture and address all of the criticisms. So you justify your revenue maximization, your professional product by spending it in ways that are supposedly consistent with your nonprofit mission. But another thing about this is that's not really how the money is being spent. Before any money is being spent downstream on any reasonable education expenditure, first, you're building all these facilities and you're making coaches multimillionaires and you have these absurd administrative salaries and and bloated administrative staffs. So those aren't serving the educational purpose. They're serving the business purpose. But if you frame it this way and you're the NCAA president, you just have to say it so. It doesn't have to be so. You just have to say it so. And then you get this spontaneous consent that Southall and Storowski talked about. But I don't think that Brand was thinking, wait a minute, God, let's look at the actual people who are generating this revenue. The actual people who are generating it are black and many of them come from very challenging personal financial circumstances and we have these indefensible compensation limits on them. Then we're taking that money and we're shifting it over to well-off white beneficiaries and stakeholders. It's indefensible. It's absolutely indefensible. But there's a tacit admission in this formulation of the collegiate model that Miles Brand unveiled in January of 2006. And that is that these athletes have real value. And a lot of the critics of big-time college sports and some of the in-system stakeholders absolutely deny that these athletes have any economic value independent of their relationship to their university, their football or basketball program, and their coach. And that is one of the grand lies of big-time college sports. And we're going to talk about that. But Brand is admitting here 
that they have value and they're going to exploit the, that value and that market and so long as they're transferring it over to these interests that they can claim are consistent with the nonprofit mission. It's just a fraud. It's an absolute fraud. But that's a business model that the NCAA is still employing and it's still defending. I talked about Rebecca Blank, who's the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a few episodes back. I think it was episode six on the Big Ten decision to remove its fall football decisions from a public forum and to go into an ostensibly private forum. And I talked about Blank being used by the NCAA as one-stop shopping for all of its propaganda. But in her Senate testimony, she testified at the September 15th, 2020 hearings in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the Senate, and she used this collegiate model not as precisely or as provocatively as Brand did. And in terms of, uh, let's see, where was that quote? He says, here, he says, let me put it provocatively. And then he talks about this fact that universities have to maximize revenue, that they are under a duty to do that. Blank doesn't put it that aggressively. She sort of takes the edge off of it. But she walks into the Senate and she's saying, well, people just don't understand the collegiate model of intercollegiate athletics. And then she goes on to try to articulate it. And it's not really a precise definition, but the general gist of it is that we're going to take money from these big time sports, we're going to give it to non-revenue sports, and that's just the way universities do it, which is not the case either. So when I get to my myth busting, I'm going to talk about the grand lie that the NCAA and the universities tell or have convinced themselves of that the what they're doing with the athletics money is identical to what's happening in the rest of the university, and that's just not the case. All right, so there you have it. So that is one of the most consequential speeches in NCAA history, and that basic business model of maximizing revenue and then spending it on downstream beneficiaries that can't pay for themselves because all these non-revenue sports are non-revenue because they don't make any money. And if the big-time football and basketball money wasn't supporting them, the university would have to decide whether those sports were important enough for the university to fund itself, which is not a big deal. They make it sound like it's this horrible thing when they talk about financial calamity and, and how ridiculous it is that any university money is being used to subsidize college athletics and it's being all this stuff you hear from academic reformers. But in 90% of the NCAA institutions, that's the way it works. The, they, none of them make money. Down, from below the FBS division, 120 schools in the FBS division, down Division One, and in all of Division Two and Division Three, those products lose money and they are subsidized almost exclusively by university operating costs. And the university has to decide at the values level, all these things brands talking about, whether they're going to be in that game and how important those products are to the university for whatever reason, whether it's educational or otherwise, whatever they're really doing in their boardrooms, whatever they're saying in their boardrooms, they have to make that decision. And another grand lie that the NCAA tells and the Power Five tell is that if we don't have the maximum revenue from football and men's basketball, then the whole system is going to collapse and and all these sports are going to disappear. Those sports would only disappear if the university chose not to fund them. That's the only decision that would be relevant. Not whether some high-profile football or men's basketball player making a bunch of money off of name, image, and likeness or getting some direct payments from the university is going to kill their overall athletics program. The question is just going to be the money's moving a little bit differently. Instead of going to facilities and coaches, maybe it goes into the 
pockets of the people who actually generate the revenue. And you're not going to lose sports unless you choose to lose sports. And that's going to be because you've made the decision at the university level, at the values-based level, that it's not worth supporting those sports. And you can't put that off on the athlete's who pay for your salary. That's just bad faith. But that's the argument that the NCAA and Power Five have been making for a long time. All right, so on the back side of this speech, I don't think people saw that for what it was. And there hasn't been much written about or there hasn't been much discussion that at least I've been able to find on what the true consequences, uh, the practical consequence, and the people who are in this transfer of wealth from big-time football, men's basketball, to the recipients and beneficiaries. Who are those people? Miles Brand doesn't want to talk about that. The NCAA doesn't want to talk about that. The Power Five don't want to talk about that. But that's really important. It's so important, particularly at institutions who shove diversity and equity and inclusion down the community's throats. It, it's just impossible to wrap your head around the way that they've justified this business model in big time football and men's basketball. And how do they reconcile that with the way that they claim to be committed to civil rights, to equity, to inclusion, to diversity, to all of the things that the universities have really put front and center in their value system. Those values, all of a sudden, they just don't apply to these two groups of members of the community. And I'm going to talk about why that's the case. And it goes to one of these dark elements of the big-time college sports marketplace that nobody wants to talk about, honestly. And that's how the university administrators, the faculty, the governing boards, and a lot of the decision makers on the university side really feel and think about the people in revenue-producing sports. And again, that's not going to be an uplifting discussion because there is widespread hostility, not just to the products, but to the people. And I have some personal experience with that. So in that, I'm going to call on my experience as a Division I athlete in a revenue-producing sport. But I've spent a lot of time around universities outside of my undergraduate experience. And I've been connected directly to universities almost my whole life. And so I'm acquainted with that mindset and how it expresses itself outside of the the public view. And it is, again, it is widespread and it is powerful. And it has gone, in my judgment, to the delegitimization of African-American football and men's basketball players. And ironically, some of that delegitimization is being perpetrated by many who are in the diversity, inclusion, institutional equity business. That's an entire cottage industry in higher education. But these people have, I guess, convinced themselves that the, this class of community members aren't worth standing up for. Even within the systems designed to protect the interests of these athletes, they're not considered uh, legitimate beneficiaries of those protections in the way that the university en- enforces those protections. As, again, you just look at it honestly and say, what the hell is going on here? And it ties back, again, to some underlying values-based beliefs that serve in large part to delegitimize revenue-producing athletes as legitimate members of the university community. All right, so now let's move into the next important thing that happened in 2006. And that was just a month later on February 17th of 2006, a group of athletes 
filed an antitrust lawsuit in the Central District of California, federal court, and the name plaintiff was a former athlete named Jason White. And he and some other athletes formed a class and claimed that the NCAA's then existing scholarship limit, which was set below the full cost of attending college, violated antitrust laws. And they litigated that for a couple of years, and then the case was settled. But it's important to remember, and I've mentioned this before, but it's worth saying again, the NCAA claims that it voluntarily adopted these full cost of attendance scholarships in 2014. And that was really with the Ninth Circuit's boot on its throat. And we'll talk more about that in another episode. But in 2006, you had the NCAA just saying, hell no. And we're drawing a line in the sand here. And even though we have this unconscionable scholarship limit that's set below the full cost of attending college, below what other regular students can get if they qualify for it based on federal financial aid standards, we're not going to allow you to get a penny above that. Because if you do, then that's pay for play. And if you do, then you're a professional. And if you do, that'll mean the end of college sports as we know them. All of those arguments made explicitly. That was the central defense that the NCAA put up in that case. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion about the fact that the scholarships that the athletes were asking for in white was not that much different from the laundry money that existed between 1956 and 1973. So they weren't asking for something new. They were actually asking for a return to prior practice. And the NCAA said, no, hell no. Over our dead bodies, are you going to get a penny more than this athletic scholarship set below the full cost of attending college? And the case is ultimately settled. This is a really important event along the timeline because now we're adding federal antitrust litigation into the radar screen of external threats that the NCAA is monitoring and trying to manage. And that is an entirely new ball game for the NCAA. And the reason that White's significant is that it was the first lawsuit filed by athletes challenging a compensation limit. There had been some lawsuits back in the 70s that went to scholarship limits and to transfer rules and to other things that really didn't go to the heart of the amateurism model and the relationship between the athletes and the universities. And then later in 2006, in fact, on October 2nd of 2006, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, a guy named Bill Thomas, who was Republican from California, sent a letter on behalf of the committee to Miles Brand in which the Ways and Means Committee questioned the NCAA's tax-exempt status. And so Thomas puts together a pretty detailed letter here, and he poses specific questions and asks for specific information of Brand. And I'm just going to identify some of the things that Thomas talks about, because some of the questions are just very basic questions that get lost in all the NCAA and Power Five propaganda. But it, Thomas says, I'm writing to request information on whether major intercollegiate athletics further the exempt purpose of the NCAA and more generally educational institutions. And then he cites some of the fluffy language that the NCAA puts in its constitution and that it puts in its IRS Form 990 filings about what its purpose is, like maintaining intercollegiate athletics as an integral part of the educational program and the athlete is an integral part of the student body. And Thomas asks a couple of basic questions that really go to the purpose of nonprofit status because you don't have to pay federal taxes if you're a legitimate nonprofit. If you're 
organized to do one of the specified things that you can do as a nonprofit because those things add value at the societal level. And we've made a decision as a society and Congress and the IRS have decided that if you engage in these activities, we don't want you to pay taxes. We want people to have an incentive to engage in those kinds of socially beneficial activities. So Thomas asks Brand, from the standpoint of a federal taxpayer, what benefits does the NCAA provide taxpayers in exchange for its tax exemption? And then he asks, from the standpoint of a federal taxpayer, why should the federal government subsidize the athletic activities of educational institutions when that subsidy is being used to help pay for escalating coaches' salaries, costly chartered travel, and state-of-the-art athletics facilities. And then he notes that officials from the NCAA athletic conferences and universities have explained that college football and basketball should be tax-exempt because some universities generate a profit from these sports that is used for other university-sponsored sports. And that's really the crux of Miles Brand's conceptualization or redefinition of the collegiate model in his 2006 speech. And Thomas says, to be tax-exempt, however, the activity itself must contribute to the accomplishment of the university's educational purpose. So he's really saying that it's how the money is generated, which Miles Brand has just sort of skipped over and said, look, this is just a way to bring in money. We have a duty to maximize our profits. And yeah, it's going to be professionalized, but it's okay if we spend it the right way. That's not Thomas is saying, no, that's not the way it works. It's the activity itself through which you generate that money. That's the real test here in terms of tax-exempt qualification. And He asks a few other things. Let's see. He asks whether college athletes are being admitted primarily for their athletic prowess, or the way he couched it was, would they have been admitted but for that? And in many cases, the answer to that is no. Let's see. And then he asks, of the institutions that generate a net profit, how many use the profit for purposes unrelated to the athletics department? That's a really important question because the way that Miles Brand was framing the the output side, the expenditure side, being consistent with the nonprofit mission, he's really focusing on spending it on white athletes and white administrators. So the question that Thomas is asking is, how much of that money is going to the library? How much of that money is going to academic scholarships on the general university side? How much of that money is going to construction costs for the new chemistry building? And the answer to that is zero. There may be some nominal payment that athletics departments can point to as evidence of their compliance with the nonprofit mission. But by and large, that money goes into coaches' pockets and they go to build lavish facilities that give them a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. And then Thomas focuses on the March Madness contract between the NCAA and uh, CBS and and later Turner. This was before Turner came on board. But he says the NCAA receives 85% of its revenues from the sale of television rights. What is the influence of television networks on the NCAA's decisions? That's a great question. And given the reliance of the NCAA national office on that revenue and the way that the NCAA spreads it around to keep downstream stakeholders happy enough not to complain about it, what role does CBS play? I I think it's much bigger than anybody wants to acknowledge. And we'll talk about that as we go along as well. So Thomas asks all these questions. And then on October 30th of 2006, just three weeks after Brand receives this letter, 
he makes another appearance at the National Press Club in D.C. And that was, I think, the third time that Brand had appeared there. I think there may have been a some kind of a relationship there because, you know, Brand needed a public forum and he didn't want it to be in Congress and he wanted something that was going to generate some buzz. And what better place to go to than the National Press Club to spew your propaganda and have that media organization and its members put all your talking points out into the public domain, and that will result in spontaneous consent to your message. That's what you do. And so Brand uses that speech to talk about the results of a task force that he had put together, the presidential task force. And there's some interesting stuff there. I'm not going to go into that right now. He also talks about academic standards, and that's another issue that he folded into this collegiate model because if, as a practical matter, and he knew this, and this wasn't something they were going to say out loud, but as a practical matter, if you're going to jack up your emphasis on football, men's basketball, and maximize the revenue there and make these already full-time employees work even harder and bear a larger brunt of the load that you're putting on them, there's no way that they can be the quote-unquote regular students that you claim that they are. And your academic performance is going to suffer. That's just common sense. So Brand devised these ridiculous substitutes for any meaningful graduation rate data that basically make it impossible for a school to look bad. And that's the graduation success rate. And let's see, the APR what is that? Uh, academic progress rate. And well, I'm going to talk about that stuff down the line as well. Again, I'm going to have kind of an unconventional twist on that whole discussion because I don't really look at it in terms of graduation rates or progress towards a degree. I look at it in terms of retention and attrition rates. And you have to look at the real purpose for why these athletes are choosing the school and the program and the coach and how they come to find themselves at those schools through this really aggressive recruiting process and applying standards that are used for the general student population to these athletes, the uniquely situated athletes in terms of their relationship to the university, completely changes the way that we should be looking at whether the schools and universities and programs and coaches are living up to the bargain that they're selling to these kids. And if you remember in the montage, I played some clips from that 2006 speech. To, number one, to show the just the profound hypocrisy. In the 2001 speech, Brand was speaking the language of academic reformists, and he was saying that it's a good thing to decrease revenue. It's a good thing to lose the best players to the professional market, to ratchet down professionalism, to reduce the amount of money that comes in. Because if you do that, then schools are going to have to look a, a lot harder at how they're spending their athletics money. And that's a good thing. In 2006, he's saying, the hell with that. We're going to just press the gas on this. And those two positions are simply irreconcilable. It really goes to the transition that Brand made from academia to the world of big business in big time college sports. But in that montage, I played a couple of clips where Brand is speaking directly to the House Ways and Means Committee because he hasn't responded at this point. I think the NCAA responded a couple of weeks after that. But he clearly wanted this speech in that window to 
emphasize points that were going to be friendly to how his response was going to be perceived. So he's using the media and using it intelligently. But you heard in the Q&A, one of the questions was, should college athletes receive stipends? And Brand says, he steps to the microphone. You have to see it to get the, you appreciate the impact of it. And it was actually a pretty good move by Brand. So he just leans into the microphone, looks at the audience and says, no. And then he steps back. <laughs> and then the, the moderator comes in and says, okay, well, why not? And then Brand goes into the NCAA talking point. If by stipends you mean pay for play, then absolutely not. If you want to enjoy professional sports, go play for the Washington Redskins and all that stuff. That was a direct response to the white litigation. And so the stipend he was talking about there was the cost of attendance stipend. And that language was used in 2006 during the white litigation. They were referred to as cost of attendance stipends. And uh, Brand saying, no, hell no, over, over our dead body. So he's drawing that line in the sand. And that was a specific reference to the white case. And then he gets a question, how concerned are you about the inquiry by Congress into the tax-exempt status of the NCAA? And are there any aspects of it that are hard to defend? And then Brand says, we are absolutely certain that we're in full compliance with IRS uh, standards. We've been ably advised by outside counsel along those lines and, and all that. So he is basically saying, saying we're doing everything the right way. And then there's another thing that was really interesting. He got another question, and the question was, how is the BCS working, and are you thinking about any refinements to it? And remember that Brand had really been carrying the BCS and big-time college football's water for them in Congress in these 2003 hearings. And then Brand says this, the NCAA has nothing to do with the BCS Bowl Championship Series. That's a postseason Division 1A football that is run by the 11 conferences that make up the Division 1A. The NCAA has no input into that and is not a party to that. So Miles Brands is he's washing his hands of the problems that big-time football is finding itself in Congress. And that's just a really interesting response. And I'm not quite sure all the motivations were, but he's clearly trying to distance the NCAA from the football product. And that is an accurate, his characterization there is much more accurate than what he portrayed to Congress in 2003, because the NCAA has no control over big time college football because of Board of Regents. So, so that 2006 was a really important year. Because you had this business model that required the maximum exploitation of football and men's basketball. And then you take that money from black laborers and you shift it over to these white beneficiaries within the athletics department. Okay. And then you say that everything's okay. Everything's good. And we have this divine entwinement of education and athletics. And by definition, they are inseparable. They are one and the same. And all of the things that you get from athletics are embedded in educational values. So we just have one big happy amateurism family here in the marriage of athletics and academics. And then you have the graduation rate uh, matrix that you change. You just change the way that you count instead of acknowledging that by putting the additional pressure on these revenue producing athletes, you've put them in a position where it's almost impossible for them to have a meaningful education experience. And so as we close out the collegiate model component of the pay for play series, I just want to tie it back into pay for play. So why is the collegiate model era important? Because the final formulation of the collegiate model by Miles Brand in 2006, really changed the 
purpose of the relationship, or at least it brought it out into the light. And Miles Brand explicitly put on the table the fact that these athletes are here to make us money. That's essentially what he was saying. We're bringing them in to make money. They're going to make money, and we're going to squeeze every nickel that we can out of them, and then we're going to take all that money and give it to downstream white beneficiaries. But in terms of the relationship between the universities and the athletes, that was a critical inflection point because not only did the NCAA and Miles Brand acknowledge the true purpose and value of these athletes, they put themselves in a position where I think it's really hard to try to make the case that these guys are equal, are students on the same terms as other quote-unquote regular students. And then it points out the absurdity of the compensation caps that look less and less defensible as the money increases. And that's clearly happening with the explosion of, of football and men's basketball and the, the gap between the revenue that's generated and the cap, which hasn't changed since 1956. So then we're transitioning into the antitrust litigation era And again, this is the suits that are brought by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And we are going to look at how the relationship between the athletes and the universities changes and what the basic terms are and how this O'Bannon court folds name, image, and likeness compensation into the athletics scholarship, which is on its face an educational exchange. And that's how the NCAA categorizes it. And there's some inconsistency there that I think just shows the absurdity of not acknowledging that the athletic scholarship is a form of pay for play. And trying to treat it as a true educational exchange looks silly when you're sticking compensation for name, image, and likeness into that education-related benefit and that scholarship. is It's just silly. And then we're going to transition from O'Bannon into this important year of 2014. And you had a number of really important things happen in that year, and we're going to walk through them. And then on the back side of that, we're going to transition into the perfect storm, May of 2019, to the present. And so this pay-for-play series really is going to be the perfect segue into this May 14th of 2019 period to the present and the tactics that big amateurism has employed to obtain sweeping federal protections and immunities like federal antitrust immunity, like preemption of any state laws that are inconsistent with NCAA compensation limits, and like a declaration from the federal government that college athletes cannot be deemed employees of their universities. And that's going to be really what we've been pushing towards through this whole podcast. And I think it's going to be a really interesting journey into the dark soul of the movers and shakers in the business of big-time college sports. So I want to thank you for joining me. And it's always an honor to have you along for the ride. And I hope you will be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm -hmm.